Welcome to Dr. Who Podcast, everybody. We appreciate you supporting this podcast. Uh, I've got a lot of interesting guests coming up, uh, and today we're going to have Bertha Madras in here, a professor of psychobiology at Harvard. But before I get into this interview, I want to take a quick call from Sarah. Sarah, go ahead. Thanks, Dr. Drew. I wanted to ask you about um, the reaction that I had recently. Um, a couple weeks ago, I found out that I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And Congratulations. It would have been my, well, thank you. Um, it would have been my first pregnancy. And, um, you know, I'm happily married. I'm 35. And my reaction was that I was really sad. And it was a very visceral um, kind of depression. Like, and like as soon I, as you found out, or it sort of slowly came on? Um, it was kind of as soon as I found out, and it lasted for about three days, where I just was really, really sad, and I cried a lot, which I normally am not a crier. So uh, I was just wondering if you've ever um, had a, a, a pregnant mother or pretended-to-be mother um, have that type of reaction. Well, for sure. I'm all kinds of mood swings. You know, you've heard of baby blues and also postpartum depression. And you know, right now, you're going to be flooded with progesterone, which in some women can tend you towards depression. And then our when we have children, it evokes whatever unfinished business we have, you know, traumas left over from our own childhood. Uh, did something happen, some abandonment or something when you were growing up? No, and that's why I was so surprised. So I had hmm. I have a great family, great upbringing, and um, a great marriage now. So I, I always thought that if or when I did get pregnant, I would be really excited and happy. Um, I'm not the type of person who's, like, desperate for a baby, but if it happens, that's great. Um, but if it doesn't, that's okay, too. It's really interesting. And now you feel normal, euthymic. Um, yeah. I I mean, there's been a, a second chapter, I think, to the story um, since that. That was a couple weeks ago. And um, the, the part two is that I, last week, experienced some cramping and some bleeding. And um, the pregnancy didn't end up progressing. Oh, um, I, wonder if it's had however, to, I wonder if that has something to do with the biology of what was going on. It's really interesting. That's what I was wondering, too. Like, did my body know that it was going to be a short-term um, progression and that it wouldn't move, you know, all the way uh, You know, I, I've, uh, it sounds almost too just so to believe, but I've seen some mm-hmm. funny stuff around this. And it's possible, right? I mean, maybe you somehow instinctively knew it wasn't going to survive and there was a sadness, a sense of loss of this. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's very interesting. Um, but... I would not have it prevent you from proceeding with uh, a future pregnancy. That's for sure. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So let me know. If you I'm, get pregnant I'm, again, call again. It's, it's so <laughs> fascinating. But I, I'm telling yeah. you, the, the, the psychobiology of, of pregnancy is – we have limited understanding. And I, I've heard some very wild stories, not unlike your own, where I just mm. think the, the magic of all this and the, the female biology is just almost <laughs> overwhelming. So – uh, uh, let's, you know, let's assume it's one of these, you know, that's, that's a just so story we could tell ourselves or it's a biology we don't fully understand, but, uh, isn't that something? <laughs> that's, that's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It could be. If that is the case, then it's quite fascinating and I will, uh, I'll keep you updated. If, Please do. If another comes, comes through. So. Very, very interesting. Thanks, Sarah. Appreciate the call. Thanks, you betcha. Okay. Now, it is my privilege to welcome my guests. It's Bertha Madras. She is a professor of psychobiology at Harvard Medical School. Uh, she has served as deputy director of demand reduction of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. She was nominated initially by George W. Bush in 2006. She's also served as the associate director for public education and the vision on addicts at Harvard. PhD from bio, in biochemistry from McGill. Uh, Dr. Madras, thank you so much for joining us. 
I'm delighted to be with you this evening. So uh, I, I wanted to talk to you about a couple things. Uh, I, and again, we have to, have to be careful not to geek out too much about the biology here and making sure we can talk <laughs> in a way that, that everyone understands. But, but I, I know you do a lot of work in the cellular biology of addiction, and, and that's something that has always fascinated me. Uh, I guess we could start the conversation by saying, is there anything, anything on your radar that's really got you preoccupied now? There are probably two things. Okay. One is the effects of drugs on epigenetics. So before I geek anybody out and they turn off because that yeah. word is, is, is daunting, let me explain something. The DNA we inherit from our parents is fixed and carved in stone, and yet it isn't. And the reason it isn't is that it can be modified as a result of environment, chemicals, drugs, uh, emotional states. And what we're finding is that drugs can modify the DNA that we have. Now, in the past, everyone thought that once um, a person becomes pregnant, the sperm cells, the ova, clean out their DNA and wipe out all the environmental influences so that we don't transmit our problems, our emotions, our stresses, our drug exposure to the next generation. But what's happening now is that there's growing evidence that, in fact, some drugs do change the DNA in a way that can get into the next generation. So I think that's really quite fascinating and also very worrisome. Is it? Is it? It's not. It's not really changing the DNA itself. It's cha- changing the expression of the DNA or the no. the the, the like like the sugars that are attached or the proteomics it, around it. Yeah. Yeah, I, the, I did not want to get into that. Let's <laughs> get a little I'm, bit. I'm little always bit. afraid of being called a nerd. No, well, I I will call you. Let, let's call it out. You're a nerd. I'm a nerd. Let's get going. Let's get it going here. Well, so so it, it's like saying that you you have an alphabet that you know you have a series of of words that are fixed in stone. And their spelling is always the same. That DNA doesn't change. Right. But you can put an accent on it. You can put a period. You can put a comma. And it changes the sense of how it's read. Right. What, the, it, it, yes, it modifies the sugars that are attached to it. It modifies uh, some of the proteins that uh, uh, unravel it or, or stop it from unraveling. So that the most important thing that happens in the end is what is going to be read off the DNA? Is it going to be more or less of the protein that the DNA is coding for? Yeah, people need to understand that DNA is a genetic code that produces proteins. That's really essentially what, what it does. That's um, correct. How does it makes it's always been sensible that the environment affected the DNA expression of our somatic makeup. In other words, you know, something in our body that we have this pre-existing DNA that our cells are dividing, and as they divide, something in the environment can affect it. How does it get into our germ cells, and then how does it get from our germ cells to our offspring? Well, nobody understands that yet, but the is somehow the changes in DNA, if, if you're exposed to drugs, uh, while you're pregnant or even before pregnancy, and even males um, before pregnancy, there's some evidence now that the DNA actually is the, you know, the, the epigenetic component of the DNA gets modified in the sperm cell or in the ova. Uh, 
and by being exposed to the drugs, and then it's that change is transmitted to the next generation. There isn't a clear um, understanding of exactly how that happens, but it there is clear evidence that that for example, this is Yasmin Hurd's work at uh, Mount Sinai. She showed that if two adolescent rats are exposed to THC, the the active component of marijuana, while they're adolescents, they're not pregnant, they don't mate. Then she allows them to grow up, and then they mate long after all the THC is cleared from their bodies. After they mate, they give rise to offspring. The little babies grow up. And these babies seek heroin at much higher rates than if their parents had never been exposed to THC during adolescence. Crazy. Now, crazy. And then she looked in their brains, and their dopamine system was dysregulated in the brain, in the brains of the offspring. Were they so, raised by their own parents? You know what I mean? They, I, yeah. Were they um, raised? Yeah. They were raised either independently or by their own parents. Because you wonder, again, the, the thinking is, could the exposure have changed the parenting style or something? Yeah. You know, these are weird words to use as it pertains to rats, but you know, the way the parenting phenomenon developed in a rat. And maybe yeah. that changed the DR receptors, the dopamine receptors. Really interesting stuff. You said there were two things. What's the other thing? Well, so th- that's one thing. The second thing that I-, I think is really critical is the opioid crisis yeah. and what's what's happening with it. The I've gone around the country giving talks, oh, probably ninety talks since I was put on the commission, and um, what I'm finding is is that everyone is looking for the federal government to fix the problem, solve the problem. And my feeling is that this problem has to be solved at every layer, every sector of the the nation. Mm -hmm. It's essential. We're going to have to change some medical practices. We're going to have to infuse a lot of money into the problem from the federal government. But parents are going to have to get the message as well. That and the message is to just denormalize chemical coping and chemical reward from from their uh, teenagers' lives, and they, these are issues that that will haunt us for generations unless we begin to change the culture. Well, I, I agree with that. I mean, the idea I think since the '60s of well, kids will just do that, making that normal, that's a huge mistake, and colleges are guilty of. Uh, of uh, sort of institutionalizing that behavior, frankly. So you're saying that it, it requires a multiplicity of uh, a multi-pronged approach, this opiate problem. Absolutely. We, the treatment centers in our country, we have 14,000 of them, less than 30% uh, use medications-assisted treatment. Um, some of them are philosophically against it. Others don't have psychiatrists or physicians to prescribe medications. It, that's a disastrous problem. There's so many issues that the country has to step up, but not only the government. Individuals, treatment providers, physicians, families, parents, you name it. And you mentioned uh, denormalization of uh, substances for 
you know, essentially affect regulation. And the other reason that yeah. some of these kids have problems with affect regulation is trauma, child, adverse childhood experiences. Finally, we're starting to talk about that. Uh, but yeah. that's another epidemic we're dealing with uh, on the, you know, on the heels of this. That's another epidemic. One, one of the most interesting statistics has come out for years and years, and nobody has ever made this a headline uh, in anywhere, any format, is that, it, you know, it, first of all, children who are traumatized, sexually, physically, psychologically abused have much, much higher rates of substance use than kids who are not. Kids who see fighting at home have much higher rates of substance use. Kids who are neglected by their parents. But the real headline is that if parents have strong stands against drugs and emphasize it, their kids' use rate is about 5%. If they don't, if they use themselves, if they're casual, if they think it's a rite of passage, if they're passive about it, the use rate of the children is about seven times higher. It's about 35%. That's, yeah, I, that, I'm, that shows you what an amazing influence parents can have on their children, and many parents don't even realize or even think that they have that kind of influence. Yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised by that at all. I didn't have that data off the top of my head, but I tell you, my own because I dealt with so many adolescent catastrophes when I my kids hit about 14, I told them, I said, "You can try anything. You know, you're going to be you're going to be tempted to, but if you do." There will the full extent of the law I brought to bear on you. It's on you. Go ahead, do what you got to do, and uh, but I will make sure you were arrested. I said I don't allow any illegal activities. Do anything illegal. I allow anything illegal in this household. And as far as I know, it's illegal to drink until you're 21. And anything else, if you get a developed problem, I will make sure you're driving and the cops get you and your car is packed with whatever your drug of choice is. <laughs> and then I, and I will have the drug the judge throw away the key. And I said, God help you. If a if you're at a party where one of your friend's parents serves you alcohol, because I will show up with the sheriffs and have them their asses dragged off while I stand on the grass <laughs> laughing my ass off, and and uh, that was that. And and I and as B, I said I said it's really going to be terrible for me. I'll hate it, but I have kids dying all the time because parents won't do this. And I because I love you and yeah. I have to do it. And I know I know what has to be done, and that's just the way it goes. And it's interesting how anybody that works in the field kind of knows what needs to be done, as opposed to parents who want to share their war stories with their kids, which is giving them a license to start where you left giving off. Giving them a license. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and saying, well, I, you know, I used, I got away with it, therefore it's fine with you, nothing is going to happen, or, oh, I, I want to buddy up with my child, right. I just want to be one of their pals. That's that that's just not parenting. That's well, I, well, I think parenting. I think we have the same thing with administrators on college campuses too, where they're afraid to be adults because they're, they're right. in their adolescence they were casting off the yoke of a generation that didn't understand them. Therefore, they expect that from these kids, which a different generation with different issues, be an adult. That's exactly. what they need. Exactly, and what we're doing is de- delaying maturation along all these lines in terms of assuming responsibility, in terms of getting jobs or, you know, going on to graduate school, living. I mean, more and more kids are living at home with their parents. They're dependent on their parents for longer years. And in college campuses, these kids are being treated as fragile, um, you know, almost breakable entities, bone china or not bone china. 
you know, clay. And I find that absolutely ridiculous. It's counterproductive to the to 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 the maturation process. Yeah, they they can't develop, and they certainly can't develop grit and problem solving. I did a, a podcast yeah. recently with an, a parenting expert, and she wrote a book called "The Gift of Failure" that we don't give our kids. We don't allow them the gift of failure and the struggle to to manage frustration. Well, and we say that that failure is not normal. Therefore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, drink your drink your your failures, or drown your failures in drink, or drown them in marijuana, or in benzodiazepines, or other types of, of medications. We don't make them realize that life is an endless series of highs and lows that are natural, and there are failures and successes along the way. That's what life is. I don't think children get that kind of message from their parents. It either has to be perfect, and if it's not perfect, then let's cope with some chemicals. We just got through one of the worst flu seasons ever, and this is just in time to roll into the allergy season now. It is tough to get a break. I hope you're all using Hydrolyte to stay ahead of your hydration. Hydrolyte is something I intended to invent, and they got there ahead of me. These fizzy tablets they've got in the tube that are tasty and Look, it's always been the case that we should be able to come up with an enteral rehydration product, something you can use your stomach to rehydrate yourself so you don't need an IV. Hydrolyte is exactly that. That was always my idea, and they got there first. It's healthy. It's beauty. Whether, whatever it is, sick or not, it can absolutely benefit the proper balance of sodium, glucose, and water. Hydrolyte does this better than sports drinks or water alone. I, I can't emphasize that strongly enough. Water is just water. Sports drinks don't have nearly as much solute in it, which is what you're trying to replace. If you drink too much, a little vomiting, whatever it might be, sports comes in great flavors, orange berry lemonade. It's available as a pre-mixed drink in a powder, or my personal preference are those tablets you simply drop in a glass or a bottle of water. Compared to sports drinks, Hydrolyte delivers up to four times the electrolytes with 75% less sugar. Think about that. Four times the electrolytes, 75% less sugar. It's appropriate for all ages. Whether it's a bottle or package, it's easy to use. You can find Hydrolyte at Rite Aid or at Hydrolyte.com. For a limited time, our listeners can save 30% on Hydrolyte. That is H-Y-D-R-A-L-Y-T-E, two Ys, Hydrolyte.com, slash D-R-D-R-E-W. That is slash D-R-E-W. Use the code Dr. Drew. Probably see me on TV talking about TheraWorks Relief. Well, if you're one of the millions of Americans who suffer from muscle cramps in your legs and feet, Relief is here. TheraWorks with an X, TheraWorks Relief. It's a topical foam. It's been clinically proven to relieve muscle cramps fast. And this is without the use of medication. The physicians and pharmacists had used medication before. Now this foam that is very safe can prevent cramps even before they start. For over a year now, I've been recommending TheraWorks Relief to my family, friends, patients, and it works. And I've seen many testimonials where it's like sort of stunning. It was used on collegiate athletes. It was used initially to help with infection control and was literally uh, infants would wear it for long periods of time. No adverse effect. This is a life-changing product for some of you. If you have nighttime cramps, it will change your life. TheraWorks Relief is my choice for preventing and relieving muscle cramps. Make it yours too. Get TheraWorks Relief today at select CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens Pharmacy or just go to theraworksrelief.com, T-H-E-R-W-O-R-X relief.com. Talk to your pharmacist about TheraWorks Relief. Experience relief for muscle cramps for yourself. That is TheraWorks Relief for your muscle cramps. If you like this show, of course, get the Adam Carolla Show every Wednesday on Podcast One. The Ace Man still holds the title of the number one daily downloaded podcast in the world. And, of course, there's nothing he can't complain about. Celebrity folks, join him, Doug Benson, many more. Check out Adam Carolla Show at Podcast One and Apple Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review. (laughs) 
Well, and, and again, because of this sort of narcissistic turn we've had, it's really our pain that we can't see in our children. So we mobilize to prevent them from feeling painful because it's uncomfortable for us. It's really our own pain that's mobilized, right? Well, in some cases, I think that's true. But uh, I, as I, I, quite frankly, as, as I get more and more experience in this world, the less empathetic I am with, with people who, are, um, who, who bemoan their, their woes and troubles. Because I've seen so much tragedy and so much hardship among people, and the ones who have grit and the ones who have determination do beautifully. And I think that grit can be taught. Children can learn it, and parents have a right, uh, and they have a responsibility to do it. I'll give you an example. A long time ago, I knew a woman who was a psychologist. And her daughter, she wanted her daughter to learn to play the piano. And the daughter, she bought her a grand piano, which went into the living room. Daughter said, um, never practice because she says, I don't like the sound of a piano. I think I would like to learn the harpsichord. Mother goes out and buys a harpsichord. Oh, boy. And the child doesn't do that either. She says, you bought me an inexpensive harpsichord. Huh. I would like to have a really top quality. Mother goes and rents a third. So now the living room has three oh gigantic gosh. instruments. And the child still doesn't practice because the mother is not interested in actually spending the time. Ugh. And that kind of, you know, that kind of, that kind of parenting, I see, I see many extremes. I see this intensive over-parenting which is madness, and I see the intensive underparenting, the indifference, the the either because parents are narcissists or else because they're um, they're they're simply not that attached to their children. I see the full spectrum, and all the the entire spectrum is is, is damaging to kids, where, either too much or too little. I, it sounds to me like you also must have given some thought to sort of where we're going as a country. Do, do you have any? Do you want to share some thoughts with me? Because these big psychological trends that you're describing don't sound very, very promising to me. And you add in the opioid addiction and the you know, some of the other things we'll talk about. But do you have any well, big, big I, ideas? I, there's one thing I, I think has happened to the United States that in in many ways we, we have obviously extremes. We have people who are very poor we have a middle class that in some cases is struggling, other cases is not. And then we have an upper middle and very wealthy class. In all of these instances, what I feel is, is happening is that there's so much excess. There is such an expectation that, that um, things really should come easy, and if they don't, it's not worth it, or let's give up. I just don't think that values are entrenched, really solid values of hard work. The way I saw it in, in the previous generation, in the World War II generation, you know, in, it, during the Depression there were suicides, but there wasn't a, a level of, de there was tremendous despair, high unemployment, but people were 
scraping and looking for work. They were looking to for ways to take care of their families. I don't see that kind of grit in this generation because this is such a wealthy country in which everything comes easy. And I, I think that we have to re-examine the values that we have developed over these the, the past two or three decades in terms of teaching people that everything that you do that's, that's hard, the harder it is, the tougher it is, the more you'll feel pride, and the less you'll get into trouble with, with what I would consider, um, uh, you know, very dangerous values, which, which include drug use and, and, um, and so on. I always felt that the educational system could be the source of that. And if the parents didn't have a, a way to, you know, some other mechanism of building grid or challenging, academia was always a way to do that. And and they've sort of left their post too, I think, unless the parent really knows what that is and can sort of push the, push the child down that path. Well, I, I do think that I, I've had contrasting experiences with education. My own education was in a public school, which was very, very high standards. Um, when I moved, uh, I was educated in, in Montreal. When I moved with my kids uh, into the into the public school system in the Boston area, some of the public schools that I I observed just literally threw me off because um, social studies was find a baseball player with the name P, find a river with the name P instead of a systematic look at the world, its geography, its history, I found a lot of the courses just plain fluff. And a lot of the, a lot of the courses that were offered were trendy, but not really, um, not really challenging. Well, not education, and right? It wasn't education. Right. It, right. It, it, so I, I, I think that the educational system has to toughen up. My kids went to schools where there was two hours of homework every night starting from grade one. Didn't hurt them at all. The, and although, I went to school you, with the same. I think you'll find people, <laughs> put, they push back on that, though. They, people say, oh, it's unnecessary. I, I, I don't know. I feel like that, that is how you really develop the grit and the and the mechanism no. for being able to solve problems and, and make a difference. And, you know, no. it, and, 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 and the grit can come from learning a musical instrument. Absolutely. It can come from the daily grind of being in a ballet class, from the grind of being in, in a, on a basketball team where you practice every day. That's, and and it's certainly in, in my life, none of this came to me as, as gifts from my parents. I just thought of every possible way to just get better and better in life um, by playing sports, by teaching myself vocabulary on the bus to school. I just think those kind of, you know, challenges, personal challenges are so critical for development of, 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 of meaning in life. And I don't see that, that kind of meaning. Um, being being fostered at home in some places with some parents. We can't generalize, 
and I don't see that meaning being fostered in some of our public schools as well. And you're, but you're sort of at the the core here. There's a there's a motivation. You had a motivation to do that, and you were sort of lucky to have had that. And you know, we've been talking about addiction, and addiction is a motivational disorder. It's so much. Very little is talked about as it pertains to creating motivation these days either. Most kids just, if it's hard, they just give up or they just don't want it or don't see why they should have to learn it, give up or or fight against it. I I just feel like we're not helping people create motivation that sustains. I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's not a very well thought out thought or or statement, but that's kind of one of the things I've been worrying about myself is – you know, we don't we don't talk about motivational states very often, and those are crucial for those are crucial for what I I call a, a life well lived. Because if you don't have motivation, if you don't set goals, even if the end the end game is not as as enjoyable or as as, as what you wished it, it's working towards things that have value that make people feel very. That, that give them an inner strength. And that inner strength, I, I, I think parents can foster that, and I think some children are born with it. I don't think there are any rules in terms of how you do it, but certainly children who have parents who are indifferent to what they're doing, indifferent to their daily lives, indifferent to developing skills, I think those kids have a much harder. Oh, we know battle. that. We know that. I mean, it's, it's we're pervasive with that issue. Let, let's go switch to the biology a little bit. We've been talking sort of philosophically, and yes. but, but let, let let's go back to the biology, even the cellular neurobiology a little bit, and and maybe if you could do a little primer, because I sometimes feel like if people understand their brains, they they might, I don't know, they might give them a little something to work with. Uh, I, I find something that's important to talk about is the difference between our, our liking and our wanting systems in our brain. Is that a meaningful distinction for you? Well, <laughs> it's it's a tough one to really define. Um, sometimes the liking is, is endogenous and sometimes it's exogenous. We certainly have a system for recognizing and enjoying and appreciating reward. And here's a very good example in terms of what drugs can do to the system. Um, there, there is a dopamine system, and it's probably much broader than that. It's a chemical message system that transmits signals from one nerve cell to another. It is the heart and soul of how the brain works. Without that communication system, the brain simply does not function. Now, dopamine does cue the brain that something is going to happen, and generally speaking, it cues the brain to say something good is going to happen. It's like an, like an, uh, an, an adrenaline alerting system. I, I, think, of it, I now, think of it fundamentally, at least in the mesolimbic reward apparatus, as something that the brain wants you to do again. It's, it's something that's... That re- it, yeah, go ahead. Because because it's rewarding. Now, the most interesting thing is that a study was done just a couple of years ago by a group that looked at the mesolimbic doping system during a monetary reward. Now, some people dismiss the idea of working for money, but money is what pays the rent. Money is what gets your kids' school books, and money is what gets your kids' clothing. 
So money has an intrinsic value, which which cannot be dismissed. Yeah. But in, in in an MR imaging system where you can image what parts of the brain light up, and and you can combine that with what's called a PET imaging system, so you can actually image what chemicals are being released as well. People who were, were working for monetary reward, their limbic system lights up, and they release a, a very large bolus of dopamine, which says their reward system is functioning as it should. Now, folks who have been consuming a very uh, large doses and frequent doses of marijuana, when they're given the same monetary reward, the limbic system remains absolutely quiet. Hmm. And the dopamine release is minimal, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. And now the same, the same group, the same study, they compared this kind of quietness in the, in the reward system um, in, alcohol, in people who are heavy alcohol users, and they didn't find the same thing. They were still motivated to work for money. And their limbic system squirted out dopamine, and the limbic system lit up in the MR machine and functional MR, showing that the brain really can still see reward, what what we would consider natural rewards, which are, you know, the acquisition of of uh, money, which is a, a a form of stored energy that enables you to function. I, I imagine. Society. I imagine with most substances, though, if, as you go along in, in an addictive process, you you lose. I mean, that's how why the focus becomes on the drug of choice. You lose the reward salience of other things. That is correct, and and uh, the 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 um, motivation becomes quite in, inverted, so that rewards such as love and. Um, you know, paying the rent and buying food and educating yourself, all these things are of very diminished value compared to the rewarding effects of the drugs. And if we can, this kind of system we haven't done systematically with very heavily addicted people with different drugs, but I have a feeling we're going to see it in, in, in most drugs. And then um, Dr. George Koob has all the data on the alcohol side about the stress system coming online, which is the, the other sort of countervailing that's forces that start to develop as we, as we use substances. Well, the countervailing forces are that once you withdraw from the drug, what's pulling you back is two things. One is the the desire to recreate those rewards that are chemically induced. And the second thing is to avoid the feelings of distress and stress, um, which uh, come in once the brain is no longer normal. And, and, it, and the it's brain inti- has adapted. And the, the way I think about it is that it's it's amplified now from the year, whatever period of time of using, in somebody who was, all, was dysregulated to begin with. So now you have yes. dysregulation and distress. And you, that's correct. And you have both. And the stress system is is a critical comp- component of this. And, and we know that because if a person undergoes stress after they have uh, gone into abstinence phase, they the stress will cue them. The stress will 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 compel them to seek and reintroduce the drugs into their body, which is quite a problem. 
Uh, so there are many interesting things in, in terms of the biology of addiction that we're just being able to understand. I, I think the focus only on dopamine, the focus only on certain transmitters, certain uh, you know communication signals, is probably not, is is probably now being a little bit marginalized and is being somewhat replaced by the thought that we undergo changes in, in circuitry. Yeah, wiring. Uh, wiring, wiring and, and, and genes being turned on and off, or epigenetics, whatever it might be. That's correct. Yeah. And, and the circuitry is very important because the frontal cortex, the frontal part of your brain, is critical for putting on the brakes, for impulse control, for judgment. And that part of the brain, as you gradually slide into a deeper and deeper state of addiction, that piece of the brain becomes more and more disconnected from the reward system of the brain, from the amygdala, which is the system that that um, drives emotions, drives uh, impulses, and the the stop part of the brain just is no longer able to control what we call the more primitive parts of the brain that are just continue to seek drugs. It, so it feels when you're when you're treating these guys, it, it feels like they're the time course and the kinds of progress they make. It feels like a rewiring. It feel, it feel it just sort of kind of goes. I don't know how else to describe it than that because it's it's. it's if, if these emotional regulatory systems were learning, so to speak, it's not really learning, but it, it has that same kind of a course to it that, that cognitive learning does. Well, it's interesting because there are many elements in common. In terms of the biochemistry, um, there's a lot of parallels between what we call normal learning, learning in the course of life, that is intense learning, um, and uh, and learning that is drug induced. Mm. So there there are parallels in terms of the biology. I won't spell them all out because I'm afraid to sound like a nerd. That's <laughs> a, a preoccupation of yours. But g- give me a, give me an interesting one. Give me without spelling them all out. Give me one interesting one. Well, glutamate is is one of the most critical um, neurotransmitters for reinforced learning. Yeah. Uh, the glutamate system, and um, the glutamate system, when you learn, the networks, the glutamate networks get very strongly reinforced, and Hmm. with drug-induced learning, drug-induced experiences, those networks are also reinforced. Is that suggesting novel pharmacological interventions on the calcium uh, calcium channels or the NMDA receptors? They're MDMA receptors that are the the uh, the, the, the villains. Yeah, uh, well, I call them the villains, but they really are. They're just responding to to uh, abnormal signaling. Yeah, but yeah, is that is there, is anybody working on any novel pharmacology around that? Well, the novel pharmacology. I I, I hate to get really too deep into the woods on this because I think that it's such a a shifting system. There's so many. Um, you know, new mechanisms, new signaling pathways that keep on emerging, and few of them have been tried for all the drugs. People are trying to find common pathways, common themes and theories for all how all drugs work. And right now, without subjecting 
animals to all these different types of drugs and making sure they're common, it's hard to extrapolate. The, the best study drugs have been morphine and cocaine, and there's far less that's understood about marijuana. There's a lot understood about alcohol, but methamphetamine, amphetamine, all yeah. of these, they all have different targets, essentially. Um, they have different targets, they have common targets, but they also, if you look at MR imaging, some of them have common changes in in what, what brain areas light up when you cue the person, and others don't. Uh, some of the most common things are there's downregulation of dopamine receptors, which means that the person no longer can feel the excitement and joy that dopamine can or the salience the dopamine can mm-hmm. bring. Mm-hmm. But not every drug has been subject to that kind of scrutiny. So, Do you, do you have a pet you know, theory? Do you have any a pet uh, hypothesis? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pushing you. Well, uh, of course I do. <laughs> um, my, my pet hypothesis is that the most critical rewiring is going on in the frontal cortex. Mm. And we... and. Weirdly enough, we have just finished a study in the lab where, um, and both in primates and in rodents, we can't do this in humans, obviously, where we looked at the effects, for example, of marijuana on the on a I'm, one. I'm, I'm going to bet. I'm going to bet the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. Well, you're getting very close. Uh, orbital frontal, <laughs> the orbital frontal system. It 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 it's um the insular cortex. Oh, the insular and the yeah and yes yeah and the medial and and what happens is that after repeated exposure to marijuana, these are unpublished, so I hate to talk about them in in public, but they are all already in abstract form, and that's been reported. There's a single little molecule called DCC which is really creepy sounding because it's deleted in colorectal cancer. Hmm. And this this gene happens to be very critical, not only in being absent in certain forms of cancer, but in the brain, it helps to guide dopamine circuits, and it only does it in the adolescent brain, hmm. and at no other time. Oh, boy. And we found that this little molecule, <laughs> this, uh, this uh, you know, messenger RNA expression was very dramatically changed in the, it was dramatically upregulated in the front, in, in uh, the insular cortex in um, adolescence. I'm, I wonder and, if that will mediate some of the unusual changes we see with cannabis in adolescence. And that is precisely where the research is going. And, another and the thing, most I, I interesting thing, I just, I just have to finish this. The most interesting thing is that the um, upregulation was completely mitigated in the presence of cannabidiol. Huh. So that if you combine THC with cannabidiol, you don't get it. Now, what does that mean? Currently, the ratio of THC to cannabidiol is 90 to 1 in many samples that have been analyzed. And 
um, the olden days where the plants were were wild and they were grown in Kazakhstan and Turkey were their origins of marijuana. The ratios were like one to one, nine to one, three to one. Nothing like what we're seeing now in the strains that have been produced to exacerbate the high. And the fact that we're breeding out cannabidiol may be quite detrimental to the developing adolescent brain. Oh, that's really interesting. That's right, Quip, everybody. This is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibration into an ultra-slim design with guided pulses. It's simplifying better brushing at a fraction of the cost of the bulkier brushes. It comes with a mount, goes right on your mirror. Also offers an optional subscription plan delivering new brush heads on a dentist-recommended three-month schedule for just 5 bucks, including free shipping worldwide. Quip electric toothbrush is featured in just about every gift guide. It's backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. Quip starts at just $25, and right now when you go to getquip.com slash drew, get your first refill pack for free. That's right. I don't know how we do this, but it's a Quip electric toothbrush. You will not be unsatisfied. First refill pack free at getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P, getquip.com slash drew. Hey, if you're looking to buy a car, a lot of terms can be confusing, but not with TrueCar because they give you true price. That's the actual price. The real price includes everything from accessories and fees. Even before you get to the dealership, TrueCar dealers will show you that true price on cars exactly like the one you want, all from the comfort of your home. How do you know it's a great price, a true price? Because TrueCar shows you what other people paid for the car you want. So you get that scattergram. So you educate yourself about the car and what the market bears for that car. You get a fair price and the certified dealers, the True Car certified dealers know this and they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. They're in competition as well, right? So it's not only all in, it's a true price, it's an educated price, it's a competitive price, it's a price for an actual vehicle on a True Car certified dealer's lot because it's an actual vehicle when you walk on the lot. You know you've locked in a price for a specific car. And don't forget, new or used, so when you're ready to buy new or used, visit True Car and you will enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. All right, video conferencing. It's changed everything. Fewer trips, more FaceTime, Zoom. That is my choice. You will not be unhappy with Zoom. It's flawless. It's pin-drop clear audio, instant sharing across any device, desk, laptop, tablet, or phone, HD video. It is striking. And for the first time, you can see up to 25 participants live on the screen. I use it for podcasting. I use We use Zoom for everything now. It is our absolutely our video conferencing of choice. So some of the times when you hear my podcast, uh, that will be a Zoom presentation. So the audio, it speaks for itself. And you can share anything from anyone, from any device, Word files, spreadsheets, presentation decks, YouTube videos, photo from your phone. It's everything you've always wanted. They've thought of everything in video conferencing and communication with some amazing features you didn't even think of, but you wonder how you didn't or how you've lived without it. You can even set up a green screen behind you and make a backdrop of your logo or whatever you want or exotic location. The only limit really is you. So if you already use Zoom, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, I guarantee you will not be disappointed. Z-O-O-M. Set up your free account today. Free account. I don't know how we do it. Meet happy with Zoom video communications. Set up your free account today at Zoom. 
and, and you know, the insula interests me a great deal in, in uh, pain and opiate addiction too. Um, I'm, I'm convinced that you know uh, the insula is probably going to be a lot of different things, but you know, we think of it as, as a single region. And I always think of it as the place where um, I don't want to say emotional salience because that's really more amygdala. But we're, we're affective charge is is affective charge of experience and both physical and emotional is sort of registered. Is that a, is that a reasonable way to, to suggest to talk about it? That's a reasonable way to talk about it. Um, the the what what certainly what we see in a number of people who started opioids very young is um, an inability to. To literally mature into what we call more natural rewards, there it seems to be an indifference to the world beyond the world of of, a, of an opioid induced high. Mm. And I don't understand. We we really don't have a good handle yet on what the entire process of neuroadaptation um, looks like. In fact, I've been talking to some of the very well-known opioid biologists in the country, and I said, how long does it take for the brain after you remove opioids to clear all the neuroadaptive responses that have already been documented? And they said nobody knows. Yeah, it, it's it's a and year. I it's a year. I, will, I will tell you, it's a year to get better, but it may never get all the way back. But and, and and do we have any data on whether or not it gets all the way back? And they said, and I've scoured the literature. We don't. We don't know if the brain. And let's say if we add an antagonist like the naltrexone, which blocks the mu opioid receptor, will we accelerate the process of getting it back to normal? We don't know. Or. We don't know. Why isn't there more so enthusiasm for naltrexone generally? I, I find it very bizarre that um, it's been recommended in treating I love your question. Physicians, I love your question. Go ahead. I love your question. Well, a, a, a sort of rational explanation would be that the data are still slim. You know, there are probably two to three very good, good papers out showing that, um, in fact, one of the most recent ones shows that if people can get past the withdrawal phase, which is very tough, um, buprenorphine and naltrexone work re- almost similarly. But I think there's a philosophical antagonism to naltrexone by people who are really opioid advocates. Well, n- not only that, yeah. it makes the patients more difficult. And and you, it's it's hidden. It's woven in the literature where they'll say, "Well, the patients find the buprenorphine more reinforcing." So why would they? And they make their they make their appointments more readily that way too. It's like, oh, are you kidding me? And by the way, what's yeah. really interesting: the good studies on naltrexone are on physicians because we don't give them buprenorphine; we give them naltrexone, and the outcomes are good. The outcomes are quite the outcomes good. Are, are, the outcomes are excellent. Yeah. You know, there are two things. I really do think that there is an undercurrent of opiophilia still amongst people who are uh, who who rate themselves as cognoscenti in the field and yes. I'm very concerned I about it. I am very very concerned about that. I'm telling you 
And it's the same mistake we've made as physicians for 150 years. Every, every time we come yes. upon one of these crises and epidemics, we make the same mistake. And um, yeah. I it, talked to the, Dr. It, you know, I, Robert DuPont uh, sure. this last weekend who, who created the methadone clinic, and uh, he, he's very ambivalent about this. And it's anybody that knows recovery and knows what you know, full, thriving you know, recovery is about that, that immediately gets very, very concerned about it. Well, you, you, I'm sure you've heard of Lee Robbins' work. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, that she found that of the uh, people coming back from Vietnam who had been addicted to heroin because yep. they were buying five, five penny bags on the tarmacs when these, the transport planes landed. There were people selling them yep. right on the, the arrival zones. Um, she found that 95% of the people who were addicted who came back never entered treatment I, and I, uh, I, recovered. I, th- I think that, but I, I agree with you that that is encouraging, but I, for my eye, that that data is flawed because my heroin addicts could not, could not fight it in Vietnam. <laughs> if, you're doing, if you're using it occasionally, okay. But a heroin addict in Vietnam, this, the authorities wouldn't allow yeah. that, and they would not be useful as soldiers or anything else. So that, all yeah. that data well, was the, very the, flawed, I think. It, but. Well, the, the thing that she pointed out is that the vast majority of people who had become addicted to heroin in Vietnam were in procurement they were in office jobs. They were not on the front lines. Most of the people, the vast majority of soldiers on the front lines didn't touch the stuff right, right. because they wanted to survive. Right. It was the people who were bored and who had, you know, were, had a lot of downtime and idle time were the ones who were the, the heavy, heavier users, that makes, to the best of my knowledge. Makes more sense. Let me, let me ask, sense. Let, me, let me switch gears really quick and, and ask if do you have any information or understanding, and this is really a very, very different topic and maybe unfair, but the, the, the use of hallucinogens now has become, it's, they're doing it. People are doing it all over the place on their own, microdosing yep. and, and all kinds of, mm-hmm. I'm trying to produce a, a documentary right now where I really examine all this. Uh, do you have any new information about this or any opinions about any of it? Well, the biggest problem that I see now is that um, there are people who've been around for decades trying to push the medical uses of hallucinogens. Yeah. I'm sure you're, you know who they are. Yeah. Um, they've been around for years, and now they see an opening because there have been one or two studies in which ex ecstasy or psilocybin have been used uh, and and apparently it, it you know a single dose under very controlled conditions uh, people have this epiphany of experiences spiritual experiences and they say that it's it's completely cured their depression right. their anxiety their stress and all their bad memories um, so what what is the problem with that? Uh, uh, Roland Griffiths, who who is a a, a you know fairly re- reliable researcher, has done some of the studies. But when I actually looked at the papers, a very high number of the people who were in the study had prior experience with the drugs, and it's the same problem we see with the. Uh, the marijuana and the pain studies, for example, Don Abrams and at UCSF. Um, if you give it to experienced people who know what they're getting and who, uh, have, you know, who are not 
surprised and not upset by it, um, they may find it a very agreeable experience, and they may have a spiritual, you know, epiphany. I, I, I can't read anybody's mind on this. The biggest danger is to is to suggest this is in fact a legitimate medicine and therefore it's safe for common use because these the patients that were in these very limited studies were in these quiet rooms with music with hand holding with people monitoring heart rate and so on and so forth mm-hmm. it's very different than having these drugs distributed on the street and the amount of information we have on long-term consequences and repeated use in, from the 60s, we certainly have that with LSD. We don't have it with psilocybin. We don't have it with the harmaline analogs or ibogaine we know is, can kill people. Yeah. <laughs> but for many of these hallucinogens, there is very little information on long-term consequences and what you do outside of these you know, very restricted, tidy little, uh, uh, you know, human experiments that are tightly regulated. Well, it'll be interesting. I, I think people are going to be doing more of that. I'm just keeping my eye on it. Uh, the one thing that I find positively um, bewildering slash infuriating is people will often, some of these studies are kind of anecdotal, will often say, yeah, they had a spiritual experience. And they had a major change in their personality, and they're more open now. They'll make put a value judgment on a change in that person's brain. That's a new person yep. now, and they're like, "Oh, it's better." The old person is what dead? I, what what have they done philosophically? <laughs> it's like it's an unbelievable <laughs> a, a jump to oh, they've changed for the good. Uh, it's like you've damaged somebody's brain. You've changed their brain. Let's not even call. Let's not put a pejorative <laughs> on it. You've changed their brain. They're a new, well, now a different person with a different personality, and you're putting a value judgment on it as it's being good. That's to me amazing, yeah. amazing. Well, what it what it shows you again is this is this whole concept of chemical coping. Yeah, uh, you know where where people have shown up in physicians' offices for opioids, where most likely they have psychological pain, the same for marijuana, and they are attributing these magical powers to hallucinogens. Now, yeah. the problem with all of these is it's all self-reporting. Yes, yes, there are many it's, it's forms not... of pain that you don't have an objective diagnosis. There are many forms of psychological uh, stress where you you don't have objectivity except self-reports. So I just, and, and obviously with hallucinogens, the suggestibility issue is very, very prominent <laughs> because yeah. people, you know, yeah. I, I, well, I'm I certain think, of, of I think that. philosophically we're in this conversation, we're saying that generally the move outside of the body for a chemical to regulate the brain is a suspect strategy <laughs> and that there are many other it, yep. psychological strategies for building emotional regulation and satisfaction and well-being and value and a meaningful life that do not include chemicals that we reach and put in our mouth or in our veins. Would you agree? Yeah, I completely agree. I, uh, I, I think I would I 100% agree, except I would temper with the fact that there for 
certain psychiatric diseases. Oh, of course, of course. There is no alternative. No, of course. When, there, um, when there's you know, an illness, for, when there's really a brain disorder that requires medication, it requires medication. That's that. That's right. Yeah. And some people will argue, well, how can you define where the boundary lies between a bona fide brain disorder like a major psychosis, bipolar, schizophrenia, anxiety disorders, you know, morbid, I would call it depression, and where does that boundary end where a person just feels pretty awful about themselves most of the time and is looking for a way out? And I don't know if any of us have an answer, if it's a continuum or if there's a hard stop boundary, because we don't have biological markers for most of the major the major but, mental disorder. To be fair, I, I'm an internist, and there's a lot of stuff that's continuum in general medicine too. Believe me, and you know where yeah. where is you know hepatitis begin and just some you know, abnormal liver test let off, and and, uh, and I I would argue that in psychiatry at least you have function. If you can't function, that's a pretty good indicator. And if you're not connected yes. to reality or you're having sensory experiences, voices. That nobody the, else has. Yeah, that's, that's, a pretty good, that's a pretty good line right there. Yeah. But, but I agree. Misery. Or if you sit in a chair all day long and stare at a blank wall and refuse to move. That's functioning which problem. happens. And yeah. That's, that's a, a functioning problem. That's a problem but, functioning. But, but for the rest of it, I just don't I, – I, I am – so worried that we are relying more and more on on assuming that if you alter brain chemistry, you're going to fix it and heal it and cure well, it. And I don't think that's the case. Well, I, I agree with you, and I think that that's why we were both sort of tilting towards wiring, which is an experiential, interpersonal, behavioral kind of a kind of a phenomenon, which is. Why I advocate, you know, long-term recovery and things like that, where people leave us, lead a certain kind of life, and have lead a certain kind of experience interpersonally, and rewire, rewire their brain. Yes. So yeah, I'm rewire their brain. We're going to yeah. have to leave it at that. It's been a privilege to talk to you. Do you. Is there a website or a book or anything you'd like to refer people to? Um, lots of speeches yeah. I've given, and you know, we have free books. The cell biology of addiction, um, the effects of drug abuse in the human nervous system, and imaging the brain in um, in health and disease, imaging the human brain. Uh, but other than that, there's I would say that um, more than a handful of people have desperately asked me to write a book about all my thoughts on these issues. Well, uh, and someday I will. <laughs> well, I've, I've whetted the appetite of the audience, so they're re- they're ready to receive that book. And, and it is it is. I just know. I just want to I want to have one final. You know, I I always say to people at the end when I speak to a non any sort of audience, I say, why do we revere? This three-pound organ sitting on top of our shoulders, yes. more than any other organ in the body, and it's because it's the repository of our humanity. Yes, that thing that enables us to compose poetry, to write laws, to conjure up DNA, black holes in the universe—these wondrous things that the human brain can do—and we must protect it at all costs. And one of the best and safest ways to protect it is not to introduce chemicals in it that are going to alter the circuits, the biology, the cell biology, and the genes of the brain. And, and I would add only one little uh, caveat, too, is we, we've left the, the, 
we've we are all too often leaving behind the fact that the the brain is embedded in an autonomic bodily based nervous system that informs yeah. it to a great extent and uh, we'll learn more about that system i i bet you in decades to come Absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful. All right. Thank you well, so I, much. I think this has been a, a, a real joy for me. Well, me too. And I, I really appreciate it. And maybe we'll do another one of these days with uh, you know, sure. some of the uh, whatever, the, how this, ever this opioid crisis begins to play out this year. I think it's going to be a changing year. And it'll be, there'll be more to be talked about in six months, I'm sure. So There's a lot more to be yeah. talked about. Thank you so much. Thank mu- you so, so much. So much, Bertha. Appreciate right it. Bye-bye. 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 For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.